Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For this month's episode of the F-Word on Fascism, we discuss the U.S. funding and support of Nazis in Ukraine. We were now being given so much weaponry because we perform the tasks set by the West. Because we have fun. We have fun killing and we have fun fighting. It, it sounds very much like that NATO itself is really just about preserving peace and protecting democracy in the Western world and other such things. No, on the contrary, they worked hand in glove with the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. national security state in recruiting fascists and Nazis, many of whom were from Ukraine. There's also a lot from Belarus and other places. And activists call out what they say is the complicity of the AFL-CIO in collaborating with the National Endowment for Democracy to suppress progressive labor movements in other countries. Trade unionists and grassroots people in every country facing U.S. intervention are fighting for control over their own organizations against the flood of corrupting dollars from the U.S. government. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averm. Well, President Biden authorized Wednesday an additional $800 million in weapons to be sent to Ukraine this week, bringing the total his administration has committed to Ukraine to $3.2 billion since he took office. Even organizations condemning the Russian invasion are also condemning this flood of weapons as an obvious attempt to escalate and prolong the violence rather than stop it. Code Pink tweeted, quote, The Biden administration's decision to send 800 million more in weapons and artillery to Ukraine is not in the interest of peace. It's in the interest of weapons manufacturers and war profiteers. Negotiation is the only path forward, end quote. The additional weaponry is being sent as both sides of the Ukraine-Russia conflict continue to tell two different stories of the war, with Ukraine claiming that it pushed Russia out of the Kiev suburbs and that Russia left behind a trail of war crimes. And as it prepares for a major offensive in East Ukraine, Russia says that the atrocities were carried out by Ukrainian forces as a provocation to build support for more weapons or intervention by the U.S. and NATO. Other headlines from independent journalists this week, former UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter said that based on days of research, he concluded that the Ukrainian National Police committed numerous crimes against humanity in Bucha. He said he drew on the precedent of the Nuremberg International Military Tribunal established at the end of the Second World War to prosecute Nazi war criminals and added that Biden, in seeking to shift blame for the Bucha murders onto Russia, is guilty of aiding and abetting these crimes. He wrote, quote, congratulations, America, we've created yet another presidential war criminal, end quote. After tweeting about his research, Ritter's Twitter account was suspended, reinstated, and then suspended again. (music) 
Covert Action magazine includes a new report about the U.S. funding and operating dozens of bioweapons labs in Ukraine as a possible way to prepare for biological warfare. Meanwhile, Rania Kalik on Breakthrough News interviewed Professor Tariq Cyril Amar, who said that the Azov neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine is more than just a regiment in the National Guard. And he added that the effort by U.S. lawmakers to avoid arming Ukrainian Nazis has failed. It's a classical wag the dog situation, you know, Azov actually has probably colonized a part of the state. It's not the state who has made Azov un-Azov. That's wow. what happened here. So, of course, American lawmakers can try, and I'm glad they tried, to keep, for instance, javelins out of the hands of Azov. But recently, during the war, as you would expect, we've seen a lot of visual evidence of Azov fighters with javelins. I mean, right. what, you, what would happen in a war, right? And I'm sure it also was going on before the war. He also explained how NATO has been training these far-right forces. You have cases, literally cases, I'm sure we don't know all of them, of precisely these Centuria guys going through these programs. So there you have it. You have future officers of the Ukrainian army who may go very far, literally being trained by the prime military training institutions of the West, of certain countries in the West, of NATO, if you want. Mm -hmm. And they don't know who they are even dealing with. And when they were contacted after this report came out and asked, you know, are you looking at who you are actually training? The answer was no, we don't, because that's the Ukrainians do that, right? So basically, the Ukrainians didn't have control and maybe didn't want control. And those Western partners, the Germans, the British, and the Canadians in this case, were all like, no, it's not our job. <laughs> so, and then oh you my have an God. outcome. That's unbelievable. Wow. More on this story later in the show. Here at home, the Labor Education Project on AFL CIO International Operations held a press conference and speak out here in DC demanding that. The AFL rejects $75 million in funding from the government-affiliated National Endowment for Democracy, which is implicated in destabilization of governments around the globe. The project says that the AFL needs to open its books and disclose the extent of its relationship with the National Endowment for Democracy. Here is organizer Steve Zeltzer at the April 8th press conference held in front of the AFL-CIO building just north of the White House. Everything we know about the AFL's decades of undermining labor movements on behalf of the U.S. government, we know because of the work and sacrifices of so many and so many that are unknown to us. And the history is filled with the blood of industrial workers, farmers, land offenders, mothers and their children, working class communities. More from the press conference after headlines. Now, in the aftermath of the stunning win by Amazon workers at a warehouse on Staten Island, New York, and continued wins by Starbucks workers around the country, an article in The Lever points out that the Biden administration has failed to take several steps that it can initiate with executive action, such as reinstating an Obama-era rule requiring companies like Amazon to disclose all of their spending to crush union drives, and halting Federal contracts to Amazon amid its union-busting campaign. 
In D.C., nurses at Howard University Hospital held a walkout this week for safe staffing, and Chantel James was on hand. On Monday, hundreds of Howard University hospital nurses and other workers held a strike and picketed outside of the building. They have been fighting for a fair contract and fair pay, as well as fairer staffing in light of the pressures of the pandemic. A rally was held at which speakers such as mayoral candidate Robert White voiced support. In a letter to the president of Howard and the CEO of the hospital, the union, the District of Columbia Nurses Association and National Nurses United announced a full 24-hour strike from 7.30 a.m. Monday morning until Tuesday. We bring you some voices from Monday's action. Sure, I am, I am Michelle Jones and I'm one of the social workers here. Okay. And I am part of the DCNA union, so we stand together. It is very important for us to have safe staffing because every patient deserves to have a nurse. And we need to have a fair contract that also compensates us for the hard work that we do. So together we stand, divided we fall. Great, thank you. You're welcome. For us to take care of the patients very well, we have to be staffed properly. The patients are the, the main thing, you know, and then we need to be recognized for what we do. We don't want to be undermined. If we need a raise, if we do a raise, we need to get it. As we are working, we need to be able to go home safely to our patients, to our, our family. Some people, you know, had a, uh, can work from home and all that, but nurses cannot work from home. We have to be here. Whether everybody else quit, we have to be here for our patients, so we need help. There has been no contract for hospital staff since November. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. We're also keeping our eyes on two other stories related to public health and safety. In just the past few days, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Florida have enacted abortion bans that not only violate the rights and autonomy of people seeking essential care, but will devastate abortion access across large parts of the nation. And the brutal execution-style killing of 26-year-old Patrick Lyoya by a Grand Rapids, Michigan police officer has again raised the issue of the failure of Congress to pass policing legislation in the nearly two years since the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. And finally, scientists and other activists in D.C. joined in the national wave of civil disobedience this week to draw attention to the climate crisis. A small group shut down the major highway I-395 that leads into the heart of D.C. Ford Fisher of News to Share spoke to one of the protesters. We're asking President Biden to declare a climate emergency and to stop all extraction on federal and indigenous land. The recent IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that we have a brief and rapidly closing window to address the climate crisis. And one of the world's top scientists, Sir David King, recently said that we have basically two to three years to take drastic action on the climate, and the government isn't listening. The Biden administration is talking about opening up new oil drilling and doing more exploration for oil, and it's it's killing us. It's murdering us. So we don't know what else to do, and I'm terrified for my future 
I don't want to be here, but I just don't know what else to do. We need to do something to disrupt, to put attention on this on this crisis. Fisher reported that D.C. police dragged and carried protesters from the road and arrested those who refused to leave. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Everything we know about the AFL's decades of undermining labor movements on behalf of the U.S. government, we know because of the work and sacrifices of so many and so many that are unknown to us. And the history is filled with the blood of industrial workers, farmers, land offenders, mothers and their children, working class communities. Trade unionists and grassroots people in every country facing U.S. intervention are fighting for control over their own organizations against the flood of corrupting dollars from the U.S. government. I want to acknowledge, first of all, their work, their anti-racist demands, which show us the ways we must also move in the U.S. I have to say for the record, the vast majority of people who are being scabbed on impoverished, killed, and maimed are people of color. And the the AFL and the U.S. State Department are all deeply part of this racist project. I also want to acknowledge the great sacrifice of whistleblowers, truth-tellers, those within the war machine who have refused to go along with it, who have spoken out often at great risk to themselves, starting with Philip Agee, the great CIA whistleblower, who spoke himself about the the corruption of the AFL trade in in U.S. foreign policy in the 70s. We in Payday have campaigned internationally with refusers and whistleblowers and their families since 2003, including in the campaign to free Chelsea Manning, whose diplomatic and military intelligence leaks 12 years ago shone a light on other dark corners of what we are speaking about today. And of course, WikiLeaks journalist Julian Assange continues to be persecuted in Belmarsh Prison in the UK, outrageously facing potential extradition and 175 years in prison in the US. We've been here before. In 2005, we had a press conference outside the AFL. The global women's strike that I work with in 2003 wrote an open letter to AFL-CIO President Sweeney which was published as the pamphlet, The Unions, the U.S. State Department, and Venezuela. We wrote the letter after meeting with trade unionists and community organizations in Venezuela in July 2002, only months after the attempted coup against President Chavez had been defeated by an incredible grassroots movement, spearheaded by women who had the most to lose if the Bolivarian Revolution was cut short and with the support of military who remained loyal to Chavez in the grassroots. At that time, the trade unionists in Venezuela were calling for the arrest of the corrupt leadership of the CTV CTV union, especially its president, Carlos Ortega, 
who they accused of being CIA. Ortega played a central role in the coup by giving it the appearance of a popular uprising, endorsing a so-called general strike. In reality, it was a lockout called by the Employers Association in December and then another in April right before the coup. Ortega himself also directed the employers' march to the presidential palace. This is the union president leading the bosses so that the coup plotters could take power. And the workers we met with told us that the CTV had benefited and continued to benefit from the support of the AFL-CIO. They asked for solidarity and respect from North American people for our peaceful and democratic process, which represents the great majority of our people, of women, poor people, and those with the greatest need. Yet after the coup attempt, the CTV continued to get hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from the AFL Solidarity Center. And the AFL Solidarity Center went on to fund the so-called oil coup, with the CTV was called for lockouts and industrial sabotage together with the employers and the banks and the media in Venezuela in an overt effort to bring down the Chavez government with full U.S. support. Still, the CTV continued to get funding from the Solidarity Center. But the oil workers and grassroots movement in Venezuela defeated the oil coup as well. We documented this uh, fantastic victory in a film titled The Bolivarian Revolution, Enter the Oil Workers. After that defeat of that oil coup, it led to the arrest of the head of the Employers' Council and a detention order, finally, against Ortega, who then ran away and was granted asylum by Costa Rica. And so the Venezuelan trade union movement continued to appeal to the AFL to stop supporting Ortega and the CTV. But instead, in February of 2003, the Executive Council in this building behind us passed a resolution defending both Ortega and the President of the Employers' Council, making it even clearer whose side they are on. And to this day, the AFL Solidarity Center continues to support and have close relationships with the CTV and former CTV officials. The CTV supports Juan Guaido, the man who, as my friend James Jordan from the Alliance for Global Justice says, declared himself president of Venezuela after a phone call with President Trump. In 2014, there was also a U.S. coup led against the first democratically elected president of Haiti, President Aristide, who, among other things, had tripled the minimum wage. Working with Haitians and others to oppose the coup, we found out that one of the NED's core groups, the International Republican Institute, funded, convened, and coordinated organizations behind the overthrow of President Aristide. And the AFL Solidarity Center was part of that operation as well. The Solidarity Center only supported a labor organization that agitated for the ousting of Aristide while failing to act or condemn the massive persecution of grassroots Haitians that has continued to this day. It was clear to us then, as it is now, that trade unionists in the U.S. must press the AFL-CIO to stop undermining and attacking working-class people in Venezuela and indeed around the world. Trade unionists need to hear what is happening and also to recognize that their own federation's collaboration with the U.S. government 
has also undermined its ability to defend workers here in the U.S. So we have a critical job to do. And in 2005, we joined with a number of other organizations and trade unionists around the U.S. as the Worker to Worker Solidarity Committee starting with a resolution passed by the California Federation of Labor calling for an end to NED funding for Solidarity Center activities and to open its books on the past. We went to the AFL National AFL Convention. We brought out 100 people to a rally in March in 105 degree heat in Chicago. We talked to delegates. We pressed other people, lobbied from the inside. Unfortunately, the AFL National Executive Council had brutally replaced our, this resolution with a resolution defending the Solidarity Center, and we could find no one willing to raise our resolution from the floor. And I end with this. We are in a very different moment now from 17 years ago. There's been an upsurge in labor organizing in the U.S. around the world. There's increased awareness that we, the struggle to end poverty, racism, war, and to prevent ecological devastation are interrelated, interlocking, as the Poor People's Campaign says. We're also looking forward to the AFL convention in Philadelphia this coming June. This time, we intend to win. That was Steve Zeltzer, organizer with the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, or LAPAL. That's a new organization that wants the AFL to reject any type of funding from the government-affiliated National Endowment for Democracy, which is implicated in destabilization of governments around the globe. The project says that the AFL-CIO needs to open its books and disclose the extent of its relationship with the National Endowment for Democracy. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this month's segment of the F Word on Fascism, a discussion between Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program, and Professor Gabriel Rockhill, founding director of the Critical Theory Workshop and professor of philosophy at Villanova University. Rockhill's article in liberationnews.org is titled Nazis in Ukraine, Seeing Through the Fog of the Information War. The segment starts with Brian speaking about the status of negotiations. They're clearly worried that Zelensky might actually agree to a compromise settlement with Russia. It's quite interesting. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, says, oh, yes, of course we support Zelensky's right to negotiate. But of course, there are also limits. And we're sure that he's focused on victory, meaning the U.S. wants to win the war. And in many ways, Ukraine is a proxy war for the United States. They want to win the war. They don't want to end the war. All these crocodile tears about Ukrainians and, of course, the suffering of Ukrainian people is real. 
but the crocodile tears from the same people who don't want a negotiated settlement and the same people who actually refuse to negotiate in good faith prior to the February 24th Russian military invasion into Ukraine, I don't think they give a damn about the people in Ukraine. And I think it's quite clear by the tone and tenor of the comments on the sidelines at the NATO summit that they don't care. Oddly, or maybe it's not so odd, Dr. Rockhill, there's other sectors within Ukrainian politics who also don't want the war to end and who also have been preparing for the war. And by those forces, I mean the right sector, the Azov Battalion, the other far-right parties, the parties that are either fascist or neo-Nazis. Of course, Putin announced on February 24th that the purpose of the Russian invasion was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. And some people, I think, wrongly got the impression that Ukraine is a, you know, a fascist country, which, of course, it's not. But that doesn't mean that there aren't fascist forces in Ukraine. And it doesn't mean, even if they are a relatively small part of the body politic, that they don't play a very important and at some points decisive role. Which brings us to your article on liberationnews.org. I want you to talk about that, about what the real sort of relationship of forces is between the far right in Ukraine And then after that, I want to go back to a misnomer that the United States government, because it fought against Nazi Germany and defeated Germany, is committed to a path of opposition to fascism in Europe and elsewhere. But let's start with the internal situation. What's your estimate of what's going on or has been going on in Ukraine, especially since the 2014 coup in Maidan that toppled the old government? Well, probably the best place to start is the longstanding interests on the part of the United States government and, of course, the capitalist ruling class that oversees its political elite in supporting militias and fascist forces that fight against, you know, originally during the so-called Cold War against socialist Soviet Union, but then they continue that fight in various ways against what is now a capitalist country, but a country that they do not want to have kind of emerge as a force that would call into question some of their imperialist reign over the world. And so one thing I think it's really important for your viewers and listeners to understand is that, yes, it is indeed the case that there's a you know purported liberal democracy within Ukraine, like there's a purported liberal democracy in the United States. But that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that there aren't fascist forces and very important ones that are involved in military operations that run both private vigilante militias, but then also that run militias that have been integrated into the army. It also doesn't mean that there's not a widespread cultural fascism. Again, I think your viewers and listeners should think both about the Ukraine and about the United States in these instances, where there is a celebration and a glorification of Ukraine's past, particularly its collaboration with Nazi forces. There's also been a direct 
cultural attack on the communist history of Ukraine. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to talk about the anti-communization laws, which basically make it illegal now to celebrate the Soviet Union, its symbols and other such things. And so it's a multifaceted phenomenon that people have to understand where you can have a purported liberal government that nonetheless financially supports and aids and abets both fascist forces and the kind of symbolic or cultural war that's going on that's trying to make Nazism, fascism, something that should not only be palatable and acceptable, but in fact defended and celebrated as, as kind of freedom fighters and other such things. So this is just a beginning point, but a kind of big picture overview of some of these issues. Indeed. Let's talk about the Azov Battalion and right sector and those forces and the role they have played internally in Ukraine's politics. In the parliamentary elections in 2019, the far right fielded candidates, and they got a fairly small percentage of the vote, I think about 2.1% or something like that. They, in fact, even lost seats that they had held in the parliament. So when Putin makes the assertion that we have to invade Ukraine to denazify Ukraine, it would seem like, well, wait a second, the Nazis or the fascists or the far right, they call themselves nationalists, by the way. They don't, you know, they use Nazi or fascist emblems and insignia and slogans and icons, but, you know, they present themselves as Ukrainian nationalists, essentially. So they, they basically did quite poorly in the parliamentary election, but when you go back to Maidan, what happened in February 22nd, 2014, there was a coup d'etat the day after the previous government, the Yanukovych government, that was trying to balance between East and West. It wasn't pro-Russia. It wasn't anti-EU. Yanukovych, a corrupt but democratically elected government, wanted to integrate Ukraine into the EU. The EU gave Ukraine an ultimatum that said, basically, look, you accept our deal, the terms of your entrance into the EU, which is not as a full partner, it's called an EU association agreement, which basically was an austerity plan for Ukrainians, like what the EU imposed on, on the Greeks, except maybe even worse. And Yanukovych said, well, we want to come into the EU, but we don't want that deal. So I, we say no. And the EU said, look, this is an ultimatum, take it or leave it. And at that point, the people in Western Ukraine in particular, who are more oriented towards Europe, start having protests in Maidan, in the center of Kiev, that's September, October 2013. And the protests go on and on and on. And then finally, on February 21st, 2014, the Yanukovych government comes to a negotiating table with the opposition. Yanukovych agrees to pull the police out of Maidan. There had been lots of street fighting. There was violence on both sides. He says, well, look, we'll pull the cops out of Maidan. We agree to early elections, devolve political authority, basically giving in to the demands of the opposition. And the next day, the opposition led by these forces actually stormed the parliament using violence, dispersed the parliament and try to kill Yanukovych, and he flees for his life. Again, at that moment, it's clear that the far right, while small in number later, or even perhaps then, in terms of their parliamentary support, from a physical point of view, played a decisive role. We know in American history, the role of the mob, the violent right-wing, racist, white supremacist mob, has been very decisive at certain moments. Anyway, let's go back to that 
point. And then what does it say about their emerging political trajectory? Did they gain power? Did they lose power? How did it happen? Yeah, this is such an important point because we can look at parliament and this is one sector of society. And it's true that prior to, you know, I think that if I'm not mistaken, it was in 2010 that the Freedom Party, which is an extreme ultranationalist right wing party, I think they, they garnered about 10 percent of the vote, which was a kind of high point. And as you pointed out in the most recent parliamentary elections, they you know got 2.15 percent and it didn't even go beyond the 5 percent that was necessary in order to have representation in parliament. That does not mean, though, if you don't have representation in the parliament, that there aren't forces on the ground. And so the Maidan coup is, of course, so important for understanding. It really sets the stage for what's going on today. And people need to recognize the fact that the conflict or the war in the Ukraine didn't start in 2022. In many ways, it started in 2014. And we'll kind of hopefully flesh out some of that context. And so one of the key elements was the funding and support, of course, on the part of the United States and other imperialist powers in the West. Victoria Nuland, this is regarding the Maidan coup, actually bragged about you know, spending some $5 billion in the Ukraine. And what was that money put to? I mean, it's put to a number of things, but one was supporting, propping up, militarily training and arming battalions like the Azov Battalion. And you're absolutely right, and I hope we'll touch on this too, that Azov today has been reworking their image. And so the leader of the Azov Battalion was interviewed just a few years ago and said, well, there's probably about 10 or 20% of us who are Nazis, but the rest of us aren't you know, 100% Nazis. This is, you know, trying to basically take an ultra-nationalist, anti-socialist, pro-capitalist orientation and say, well, it wasn't exactly identical to what the Nazis were doing. At one level, that's true, right? But there's an enormous continuity between these projects and the fact that you'd have the Azov Battalion having 10 to 20% of Nazis means that all of the other members of the battalion are at an absolute minimum fascist Nazi collaborators. Right. So the Azov Battalion was born in 2014 and played a really important role in the Maidan coup, along with right sector and other fascist militias. They helped consolidate the power for the post-coup government. They ran intimidation campaigns against leftists as well as against various political leaders. They ended up setting up indoctrination camps for the youth. Right. So they played a very significant role in civil society and in the immediate kind of street battles. In fact, one of the moments of the Maidan coup that is so important and it's often referred to as perhaps the greatest Nazi or fascist atrocity since World War II is when 42 leftists were incinerated by fascists in the trade union building. And so this street Violence was a really central element in the Maidan coup. And then it, of course, was juxtaposed within at least mainstream Western media to this idea that these were democratic uprisings that were nonviolent, that were just calling for kind of greater democracy. And so again, we see this the way in which a lot of the propaganda machine attempts to deflate the violence on the part of these fascist forces and inflate the kind of democratic component or supposedly democratic component that was operative. What's also important for this story is the Azov Battalion was then integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard. And this pattern, people should know, is exactly the same pattern that happened in Nazi Germany, right, where you had the SS troops that were originally vigilante troops, and then they were integrated into the state apparatus once power was consolidated. Same thing happened in Italy. 
right, with a black shirt. So these, you know, might have slightly different histories, but there are patterns that we really have to understand and identify. And since 2014, there has been an ongoing assault on the Russian separatist movement in eastern Ukraine because the Russian dominant population in these regions, once fascists came to power, decided that they didn't want to be part of Ukraine anymore and would be better served by you know, reuniting with Russia in some capacity. And so what the Ukrainian government has done both in the wake of the Maidan coup and continuing through the Zelensky government is to wage an ongoing war against the Russian separatists in which they use these fascist battalions and forces as well as the Ukrainian army in order to crush the what they often refer to as cockroaches. And this has led to the death of 14,000 people in eastern Ukraine, what the Russian government refers to as a genocidal rampage. And it's part of the justification, as you said, that Putin has put forth for why a military intervention was necessary. And again, I'm not saying that it was necessary or agreeing with Putin, but that is the thinking behind the decisions that he's made. That was Professor Gabriel Rockhill in conversation with Brian Becker on the Socialist Program, which we are featuring today on our show, On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Now back to the conversation. In Maidan, in the protests, it would be a caricature to say the people were fascist because they were protesting against Yanukovych. Many different political currents were there. There was an anti-corruption element of the protest. There was a desire to be with the EU from people who historically in the western part of Ukraine didn't look to Russia. They looked more to Europe. There was, you know, a very diverse group. But that's true about all social movements. And I think that this video clip that we're going to show actually describes that, yes, we, the fascists, are a minority but we are a decisive minority. And I think that's really important for people to understand. It's like when you think about what happened on January 6th, a lot of the people on January 6th were there because Donald Trump told them, look, the Democrats, you know, violated democracy. They stole the election. We have to stand together. We can't let our country be taken. So they came because they heard the the person who they followed, Donald Trump, and they believed him. And then there were other fascist forces, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and they were very significant in terms of the intervention into the Capitol. Anyway, let's listen to this and watch this video clip. This is a clip of Ukrainian neo-Nazi leader Yevgeny Kadas speaking on February 5th, 2022. We were now being given so much weaponry because we perform the tasks set by the West, because we are the only ones who are ready to do them, because we have fun. We have fun killing and we have fun fighting. Maidan was the victory of nationalist ideas. Nationalists were the key factor there and clearly at the front lines. Now, there's a lot of speculation saying, well, there were only a few neo-Nazis, LGBT and foreign embassies saying there were not many neo-Nazis in Maidan, maybe about 10% of the real ideological ones. Such a thing can only be said by a moron that was never at war and doesn't understand that those 10%, maybe even less, 8%, how much more their effectiveness was. It was endless. If not for those 8% of neo-Nazis, the effectiveness of Maidan 
Maidan would have dropped by 90%. So it's not the numbers that are the point. Like now some left wingers like the Bull Foundation and so on are trying to count numbers and saying things like there were that many nationalists and they had this much influence, quote unquote influence. If not for the nationalists, that whole thing would have turned into a gay parade. All right, Gabriel, very interesting because he's very proud. He says, look, yeah, we're 10%, maybe we're less, maybe we're 8%, but without us and without their ability to carry out violence, this would have been nothing but a gay parade, which shows that while, yes, it's a diverse crowd protesting against Yanukovych, there were probably progressives, leftists, the LGBTQ community, you know, lots of different people from the, especially the Western part of Ukraine The smaller but very violent force of the fascists is decisive. And that goes back to what you were talking a little bit about what happened actually in Germany in the rise of Hitler. Yeah, absolutely. As we know from if it be social movements that are progressive or right wing social movements, it's one thing to even get people in the street. And the people in the street are usually a minority of the overall population. But then what happens in the street is largely dependent on those who take leadership within the street. And more specifically, those who are armed, connected to the state, financed by the capitalist ruling class. And this not only empowers them and gives them an enormous platform, but it allows them to act as really the leaders of certain sectors of civil society or the street more broadly. And so I think it's really important to identify that, yes, quantitatively, it is the case that, you know, they in Maidan and even today, they don't dominate every aspect of society within Ukraine. But qualitatively, they play a central role, these fascist battalions like Azov and others, precisely because they're well-funded, they are well-armed, and they take up leadership positions that can really turn the tide as they did in the Maidan coup. And, you know, another thing that I'd just like to mention about this leader, Andrei Belensky, is that he's not only the leader of the Azov Battalion, he was the original founder as well or involved in the leadership and founding of both the Patriot of Ukraine and the Social National Assembly, which are right-wing, you know, ultra-nationalist, basically fascist groups within the Ukraine. So even just the Azov Battalion is one of some 30 militias that are operative, many of which self-identify or would be objectively identified as fascist. And one thing that Belinsky is on the record stating, I think, should really stick with us, and that is, quote, the historic mission of our nation in this critical moment is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival, a crusade against the Semite-led Untermenschen. Untermenschen, of course, is the term that the Nazis used for the inferior races, right? And so it's also important that the ideological orientation is so reactionary and extreme that this is what's driving some of these forces. Yeah, Ukrainian nationalism has, you know, it's a very complex story when you look at Ukrainian nationalism You know, Putin denounced Vladimir Lenin and the policy of the Bolsheviks for having even created a republic called the Socialist Republic of Ukraine that was in 1922 and then ratified by the 1924 Soviet Constitution. The policy of the Bolsheviks was to emphasize the rights and aspirations of non-Russian speaking populations that had been conquered by the Russian Empire, including, in this case, People who spoke Ukrainian, who were part of Ukraine, the territory of Ukraine. 
The Soviet policy was to include the Donbass, that's the eastern region, which is ethnically not Ukrainian, but Russian-speaking, but was a more industrial part of the country. Ukraine in 1922 was basically, the territory of Ukraine was basically very rural, very agricultural, predominantly peasant, with an intelligentsia, of course, and, and a certain sort of bourgeois elite, but basically a peasant country. The Donbass, which was more of an industrial region and more Russian ethnically, was brought into Ukraine as the Soviets constructed this very complex policy of trying to unite the Russian and non-Russian peoples of the former Russian Empire who were now together, many of them, in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And the, the Bolshevik policy was to emphasize what was called indigenization, which meant people in Ukrainian political offices should speak Ukrainian, schools should teach, and students should learn Ukrainian rather than just Russian. It was a very multicultural approach towards the Ukrainian-speaking part of the population. So the big point that Putin is making is that this is really not a republic, it's not really a nation, it's not really should not be an independent policy. He said, if anything, uh, you could call it Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. Of course, from our point of view, the point of view of the socialist program, the Bolshevik policy was a correct policy. It provided the basis for solidarity between the different peoples who made up the Soviet Union. And, you know, for the longest time, from 1922 to 1991, most of the people in Ukraine and most of the people in Russia were sisters and brothers and comrades and shared the benefits of socialism together, built socialism together, defeated Nazi Germany when it invaded the country in 1941 together. They lost millions together. But there was an element of Ukrainian society that was never with that program. Stefan Bandera, the OUN, the what are called the Ukrainian nationalists, they actually did collaborate with Hitler. They had some differences with the German Nazis over what kind of sort of nationalism or fascism would be imposed on Ukraine. Of course, the Germans wanted to have it their way on all things. But they were together in, in terms of fighting a mutual foe, which was the Russians and the Soviet Union. Let's just talk about that history, because the same forces that we're talking about, the Azov Battalion, which is not simply a battalion now, it's an Azov movement the right sector, the other far right, they identify with the people who were working with the fascist invaders of Ukraine in 1941. Let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Stepan Bandera is now considered, he was glorified with the Hero of, of Ukraine Medal of Honor. And if we look into his history, you know, he was the one of the leaders of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN that you mentioned, um, as well as the armed wing, the Ukrainian insurgent army. And the positions that these two organizations took was to collaborate with the Nazis against the Soviet Union in World War II. And the OUN played a very significant part 
in the genocidal extermination that took place within the Ukraine. And in fact, according to some analyses, one quarter of the victims of the Holocaust were Ukrainian victims. And these two organizations were involved in it. In fact, they were not only involved in it, but also did much of the dirty work that the Nazis themselves wanted to outsource, meaning the killing of children and the genocidal elimination of the civilian population. And what's extraordinary and also very important to know about this history is that Stepan Bandera, as well as Mikolo Lebed, Lebed was Bandera's chief of national security service. They were protected by the U.S. national security state in the wake of World War II. They weren't sent to Nuremberg. They weren't put in prison. There wasn't a global manhunt like the one they unleashed on Che Guevara. No, instead, they wanted to protect these figures as figures who were important because they did the most important work in the global class struggle, and that was the work of killing communists. And so they continued to not only protect the leadership, but then they integrated members of the OUN into the, you know, what was really a kind of fascist international architecture that was set up in the wake of World War II and also had predecessors before World War II. Frank Wisner, one of the CIA architects, claimed that You know, I believe the number was about 35,000 Soviets were killed between 1945 and 1953 by these Ukrainian fascist forces with whom the CIA and the U.S. national security state was working. And so this is a very big and important part of this history. And one other element, Brian, that I know is really important to the work that you've been doing on the socialist program is how NATO relates to all of this, right? It sounds very much like that NATO itself is really just about preserving peace and protecting democracy in the Western world and other such things. No, on the contrary, they worked hand in glove with the Central Intelligence Agency and the U.S. national security state in recruiting fascists and Nazis, many of whom were from Ukraine. There's also a lot from Belarus and other places in order to continue to wage this constant war against the Soviet Union and more generally against socialism and communism. And so it's important to see the continuities here, right? So that we don't just get caught up in the most recent months of the war, but see that there's a deeper war that is an imperialist war that has the United States working with NATO in order to recruit support fascist forces in the ongoing war on socialism, if it be the socialism that was manifest in the USSR or leftist and progressive forces. As we know, Zelensky's banned 11 parties in the Ukraine. He's arrested communists. And again, he's refused to go back on the anti-communization laws. So there's a really direct, both symbolic and material war on socialism that's going on in the Ukraine. Dr. Rockhill, you had an article two years ago. We started this show by talking about your recent article in Liberation News, but you had an article two years ago in Counterpunch. The title of it, I believe, was The U.S. Did Not Defeat Fascism in World War II. It Discreetly Internationalized It. And some of the points that you're making are referenced also in that article. And I just want to bring it home to people how important this was. I mean, there was Operation Paperclip. There were other intelligence operations where the U.S. was deliberately recruiting senior leaders in Nazi Germany, in the military, in the scientific community, and integrating them into the U.S. or into NATO, into the Pentagon, into NASA. I can remember reading an interview with Werner von Braun, who was the 
architect of the V2 rocket that was, you know, devastating London at, by Nazi Germany at the beginning of World War II. And when he was asked, well, how did he feel about having been brought to the United States? And he was, in fact, the architect of NASA and the, the man on the moon mission. They said, well, how do you feel to have uh, changed sides, you know, to be with your former enemies? And Werner von Braun said something, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he said something like, uh, well, we were always really on the same side. Our real enemy was the communists. Our real enemy was the Soviet Union. But let's just talk about the dimensions of this, both for NATO, how important Nazism, the integration of Nazi military leaders was to NATO with NASA, with Operation Paperclip, and some of the intelligence operations that went on for decades, decades. They didn't stop right after World War II. Even when there was detente between the U.S. and Soviet Union in the 60s, a lot of these operations were very robust, very aggressive. In that article, I, I give a lot of the references for some of the things that I'm going to say, because, of course, when you talk in this manner, people might begin to wonder, well, what's the basis for these claims? And so I'd encourage people to dig in because it's actually extremely well documented. Right. So Eric Lichtblau, for instance, in his research, he estimates about 10,000 Nazis were brought to the United States in the wake of World War Two. 1,600 were brought in through Operation Paperclip, and they were the brains of the Nazi war machine. They were given university positions. They were given research assistance. They were promised nationality. If their research into weapons of war and destruction bore fruit, part of this operation also was securing the intelligence services of the fascists and Nazis and redeploying them against the Soviet Union. Reinhard Galen is one of the most important figures in this regard because he was brought to the United States. He was the head of the intelligence services in Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union, right? So he is an extremely important figure. He was recruited by the CIA, brought to the United States. He was actually brought to a New York Yankees game, right, to kind of celebrate American culture, and then was put in charge of the intelligence services in Nazi Germany and proceeded to recruit many of the former associates, meaning Nazis, with whom he had worked. And this was not only in Nazi Germany. Valeria Bulgaria, the man referred to as the Black Prince, one of the leaders of what's called the neo-Nazi movement, but of course, we don't really need neo here. It's a continuation of the Nazi movement. He was one of the major fascists in Italy, and they did the same thing in Japan, right? So this was an international project, and the connection to NATO is really important. I point out in the most recent article that you highlighted that the chief of the general staff of the army under Hitler, Adolf Heusinger, was recruited by NATO and became the chairman of NATO's military committee. And this was only one of the Nazis who was integrated into the leadership of NATO. Hans Spiegel is another one, right, who oversaw and argued for the rearmament of West Germany and be took up a leadership position within NATO. You know, the Dulles brothers and many others of the political and economic elite in the United States admired what was going on in Nazi Germany and in fascist Italy and in Japan, for that matter, and really did support that project and were against the U.S. entering the war on the side of the Soviet Union. Alan Dulles is on record as saying as much. We're fighting the wrong enemy because the Nazis are Aryan, pro-Christian, and most importantly, pro-capitalist like us. And unlike the Bolsheviks or the, you know, the Soviet Union and the Nazis returned the admiration, right? The Nazis actually, they studied the U.S. legal system and 
Hitler explained that the form of racial apartheid operative in the United States was the most advanced form of white supremacy. And they modeled some of the legislation and the state building project of Nazi Germany on the United States, right? There's an interesting book from a liberal perspective called The Nazis' American Model. It has its limitations, but it goes into some of these details. But to frame kind of a lot of the issues that you highlighted in a way that I have found helpful, I would say that one of the things that's operative under bourgeois democracy is that there are different modes of governance, meaning different populations are governed in very different ways. And so if you're a member of the middle class or upper middle class, you're most likely governed by a bourgeois democracy. You have rights that are more or less respected and other such things, as long as you don't get politically out of line. But if you look at the history of bourgeois democracies, like the United States, of course, you also have other populations that are targeted for constant harassment, violence, incarceration, death, vigilante violence, and other such things. So fascism has functioned as a kind of parallel mode of governance for poor working class communities, racialized communities, and insurgent kind of socialist communities. And the history of the Ku Klux Klan and the other organizations that you touched on, you know, Proud Boys and other organizations today should give us pause to think, well, does the entire U.S. population live in a bourgeois democracy or are there only certain class sectors that are able to, you know, be protected by the rights of bourgeois democracy and others that are targeted for elimination in various ways? And the same thing goes for the relationship between the national and the international context. And this is maybe a good point to conclude on. And that is that many people think, well, the United States is a bourgeois democracy. It's not fascist. But then look at the foreign policy, right? The United States since World War II has sought to overthrow some 50 foreign governments, many of them democratically elected. It has worked with fascists, fascist militias, death squads, propped up dictators and other such things. So it's very naive to think that, well, the United States is a bourgeois democracy. And Professor Gabriel Rockhill will have the last word on today's show. He was interviewed by a friend of the show and contributor to the show, Brian Becker, on the socialist program with Brian Becker, which is on podcast and on YouTube with Breakthrough News. Brian has also joined us as national coordinator of the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital, on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms, at On the Ground with Esther Averam, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also let us know you like the show on Twitter, patreon.com, and on Facebook at On the Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V-E-R-E-M. The music we played this hour included the riff from Kick in the Door by the Notorious B.I.G. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation 
of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.